In 2018, the US film industry was worth over $43 billion. If this was a country, Hollywood would be bigger than the entire economy of Iceland or the US state of Wyoming. Film is one of America's most valuable and visible cultural exports. Think about the last time you watched a film from the US. It may have been last week, it may have been last night. With films so meaningful in many people's lives and imaginations, who it portrays and represents is also incredibly important. As many people are aware, Barack Obama's 2008 election victory was a huge moment of social change, one where a different kind of racial politics emerged in America. This change was evident in film culture too. The visibility of race came onto the political agenda in quite a dramatic, unprecedented way, following Obama's win. But since Obama's victory in 2008, we've gone from the idea of yes we can to make America great again, with Donald Trump. New films we're seeing in America are grappling with the after effects of Trump and the legacy of Obama. Films such as Moonlight, If Bill Street Could Talk, Sorry to Bother You, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, and more recently Quinn and Slim. These are films that really are invested in the often changing contemporary life of race and blackness and racism in the US. This is The Politics of Race in American Film, a podcast from the US Centre at the London School of Economics. I'm Dr. Clyde James Wonka. At the LSC, I teach a course called White Screens, Black Images, The Sociology of Black Cinema. That course has inspired this podcast, along with my own experiences living in the United Kingdom, visiting America, and making film a central piece of my sociological research. In this series, we'll be exploring key questions around the impact and influence and significance of film as a form of social analysis, engagement, and critique, and at how racial politics in America are represented by its films. We'll look at Hollywood cinema's role in how race is framed, how this is contributed to a host of broad intersectional representations of racial inequality, and examine the nature of recent films intended to address them. I suspect and hope that rather than finding concrete answers, we will find many different perspectives on these ideas and to have a conversation about the mutually informative relationship between popular films and the politics of race. I want to start with a bit of background as to why film is important to me and how I came to study it as an academic discipline. In the late 1990s, a film called Baby Mother was filmed in my neighbourhood in Brent in northwest London. Seeing it broadcast on TV three or four years later gave me a sense of recognition and identity that was now being projected onto the national sphere. The film wasn't overtly about race, although it did have an entirely black cast. It was about forms of cultural practice, as well as an architectural and cultural landscape that were very familiar to me living in the area at the time. Growing up, we watched American films on TV and in the cinema. Our initial ideas of film were always informed by America. And one of the films that made a big impression on me while I was younger was, of course, Boys in the Hood by John Singleton, for obvious reasons. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second that what happened in LA was what was happening in Northwest London, but there were things that were quite recognisable to us. Film has a tremendous value in being able to refer to existence and to a particular kind of black life when it's allowed to. That can be very, very powerful as it was for me as a young child growing up in Brent in Northwest London. And film can be incredibly valuable in terms of thinking about representation and how important it is to be seen, 
to be recognized, to live and breathe on the screen. Gradually, as I got older and began to investigate film at a much more intellectual level, what was available to me was, of course, American film. Not particularly films about race, but about America more generally. And then, as I worked my way through the university system and began to bring a more of a political lens into my scholarship, I began to try and forge a relationship between how American film was consumed and the textual quality of American cinema itself. How a film creates meaning through what it presents. I also wanted to understand how film was being informed by both small and large political forces, be they George W. Bush and 9-11 and the war on terror, or Obama and these notions of change or what's currently going on in US politics. As I mentioned, at the London School of Economics, I teach a course called White Screens, Black Images, The Sociology of Black Cinema, which considers the politics of race in black British and American cinema. In my course, which is based on my own research, I explore the concept of black film and its interpretations using these varying definitions through past, emerging and future forms of black cinema and how these forms have, and continue to, both penetrate and subvert mainstream definitions. I also look at how new forms of black British and American film facilitate new modes of representation, authorship and socio-political engagement. So what do we mean when we talk about the politics of race in film, or more specifically, American film. The visibility of race associated with Obama's election came onto the political agenda in quite a dramatic and unprecedented way in 2008. This was a big pull for me to start thinking around America, black politics, and how those shifting dynamics found the kind of visual presence. And to me, it seemed that film, music, and other forms of public culture were all coalescing. If we think around the range of films that have been made since that time, that capture the zeitgeist that Obama instilled with the Yes We Can slogan, they have a sense of black uplift and self-actualization. Even the way we deal with black masculinities in films such as Moonlight are perfect examples of the Obama man who is receptive to different forms of black identity. We also saw a stronger presence of African-American women in film, in directors and acting talent, and how they began to shape and craft their own narratives rather than simply being subjects of masculine imaginations. In the contemporary Trump moment, we can't think about what's happening in America without first thinking of Spike Lee and Black Klansmen and the kind of intervention that film has tried to make in the context of the current politics of racism. And whether we go from Black Klansmen to Get Out, which has its own much more subtle politics, to the films of Barry Jenkins like Moonlight and if Bill Street could talk, these films all exist in response to the way that blackness has been living and existing over the last decade. And for me, this pattern finds its genesis in that dynamic shift in racial politics as America pivoted from the years of Obama to those of Trump. This shift has led to a much more expansive yet acute investigation of race in America, one that we'll contribute to throughout this series. Other films dealing with race in a different way have also come out of the transition from Obama to Trump. One area that we'll be looking at will be how the term white trash in the American context, works as a racialized epithet that marks out certain forms of cultural and economically determined whiteness as inferior. Given the power of symbolic associations of poor with black and the white working class with white, whiteness is so rarely connected to depictions of poverty in the contemporary US cultural imagination. 
When we think about how American film has been concerned with class, it's mostly been related to the personal rather than the social. This has been the domain where characters can be liberated. One, from their social cultural milieu, and two, achieve a growth, a freedom, and ultimately, an extrication from their socially and economically determined location. Looking closely at the links between how social class is portrayed in contemporary American film culture, gives an opportunity to address pressing questions of identity, which for the moment remain marred in cliché, stereotype and misrepresentation. To set the stage for our series, I spoke with Sam Mayhas, a research fellow in the Department of Media and Communications here at the LSC. His research focuses on the production and negotiation of social justice discourses in TV, film and other media, such as video games and social media. He problematizes the political communication frames that both support and respond to increasingly so-called woke cultural production practices in the US. So welcome, Dr. Mejias. Um, good to have you on the show. Um, Thanks for having me. So to begin, how would you describe or define African-American cinema or black cinema in this current cultural, political, social conjuncture? So currently we're seeing some really interesting um, permutations of what people would refer to as black cinema or African-American cinema. But to answer the question of, of how I would define what African-American cinema is, is, is difficult because it's a lot of different things. And it has seen historical progression and change that in a lot of ways matches the trajectory of race relations in the United States. Um, I personally believe that there is there's only really been one direction that African-American cinema goes, and that is towards a more socially conscious representation of, of blackness in America. That said, I still see uh, lots of problematic things happening with the representation of African-Americans on screen still. That is really interesting because when you talk about the African-American film or the black film as being socially conscious and responsive to the contemporary situation of black life, would you go as far back as the hood dramas in the early 90s or even before that into the 80s and 70s, for instance? So where would you define that moment where black cinema in American context took on a new social, political agenda? Um, I'm not a film scholar, but I, I, would, I would probably say that it's around the 60s when civil rights really started to you know, have cultural impact on the United States. Um, when that movement became much more visible, you started to see very small but certain barriers starting to go down. And then in the 70s with black exploitation, you had a real niche of film that was intended to depict the black experience, but also to problematize it, to satirize it, to um, essentialize it as well. So, I mean, in some respects, you had this black liberation thought movement happening that corresponded with cultural practices, but we didn't really see in my view, um, critical black films until really Spike Lee started making films. I would say like, she's got to have it. 1985 is mm. like a great example of like, okay, wow, here's a black filmmaker telling the story of, um, a black females sexual liberation and empowerment. Mm. That's super new, right? Fantastic film as well. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think it's always, it's always been difficult. And I, I've, I've read your work with some admiration in terms of how you're looking at how, this idea of what stories can be told about black people on screens 
has been very uh, segmented, compartmentalized. It's these are the stories that are acceptable for us to tell about blackness. Um, and I think we had a conversation a while ago about Top Boy as being the exemplar of mm. of the kind of black British film that can be made. And uh, I, I would agree with that. It's interesting that you mention She's Got to Have It because that was such an intervention in terms of cinema, but also in terms of black cultural representation in the 80s within the politics of Reaganism. But equally, at the same time, blackness had established itself into the mainstream of, dare we say, white Hollywood cinema. Some think of becoming a classic, well-known black cultural icons at the time, being Eddie Murphy or Danny Glover. I'm thinking of Beverly Hills Cop. Mm. I'm thinking of Lethal Weapon films, those franchises. Um, so in many ways, what we saw in the 80s was also the establishment of blackness within Hollywood as a whole, um, which may not have had a political dimension within the films. But do you think maybe the mere representation of those black cultural icons within the whiteness of Hollywood represented some kind of political intervention? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I think even now you can look at African-American cinema and recognize how problematic those representations still are. So I think looking at the case of Eddie Murphy, I mean, Eddie Murphy's forebear was who? Richard Pryor, right? So we had this big black comedian. But again, they were recognized for what was Eddie Murphy? I don't. I hope this isn't too controversial, but he was he was recognized as being a particular form of comedian that white American comedians were not able to represent. And he became famous for being black and a comedian, in my view. Like, And I think in a lot of respects, that allowed an essentialization of who he was. Yeah, he was an action star, but his action star turn was a black action star turn. It wasn't just an action star. And again, it's about how do we fix the definition of blackness within a very rigid white patriarchal structure of cinema? How do we fit that? Well, we just represent it as being other, but also the same thing at the same time. So I feel like I love the Beverly Hills Cop movies. But the movie that I saw that where I was like, oh, Eddie Murphy's doing something different that is really not being the black person in a white world was Coming to America. And that film was mm. hilarious, one of my favorite films. But that film to me was about, and we've debated this whole notion of black excellence, but it was one of those early examples of sort of, this is a film for and about black people. Sure, it navigates the white world of of Queens or New York or whatever, but it, it's... You know, it's really the forebear to um, Black Panther. It's about Black African excellence, this fictionalized African country that has a prince who can come to America and pick his queen. I mean, that's an amazing story, but it wasn't a story that we really heard before, was it? Mm, it was completely new and organic. And even for a, a British person in London watching that, uh, it was quite seismic for myself. Another seismic moment for myself in terms of recognizing as a child that all or the majority of my visual references of blackness came from America. Of course, we'll talk around um, Do the Right Thing uh, mm -hmm. later on, but the big thing was Bill Cosby and The Cosby Show. Right. I know we've spoken about this in the past and probably will do later on in this podcast series, but in many ways, when we talk around the African-American representation in film and TV or the politics of race in film and TV, you have to go through The Cosby Show and that notion of black excellence you mentioned, right. to then get through and understand the Hoodfield dramas, the films that came as a response to that, and then what we're left with now. So as an American growing up during those times, what did the Cosby show symbolize for you in terms of this idea of black excellence? It was certainly an outlier. And I mean, I, I grew up in 
a house where, you know, we like TV, we watch sitcoms and it was, you know, one of the only black sitcoms on television until a different world, which was a spinoff mm. and uh fresh Prince, which was another and fresh Prince has its own challenging uh, representational problematics. I mean, Will Smith, fantastic actor, but he was highly palatable in the nineties as a black star of a sitcom. Um, yeah. I mean, growing up, I think it took me a while to really, to really internalize that films are always trying to teach us something. So I go to bell hooks here. Actually, you see, I brought my bell hooks book today, but I love this quote because it just sort of, for me, says everything. It says, whether we like it or not, cinema assumes a pedagogical role in the lives of many people. And films might not intend to do that, but it doesn't mean that lessons aren't being learned. And that's how I approach looking at African-American cinema, which is what are we being taught about the black experience through this? And as a Haitian American, what am I being taught about how I should identify as black? And, you know, what I found was, I mean, we, we really didn't start to, you know, Spike Lee did a lot of really interesting problematizing of the black experience. He did it in ways that either conformed with the stereotyping of black males um, or that pushed against it, you know, and then he had films that people didn't even understand, like Girl Six, which is actually not just a movie about objectifying women who engage in phone sex. It's doing much, much deeper, important, almost like feminist work. And um, yeah, I mean, looking at the the way in which I grew up with those films around me, it was about recognizing that there weren't many avenues to connecting my experience as a black American to normal cinema, right? To classic Hollywood cinema, which was normally with a white protagonist, a white male protagonist, um, who is a hero, who is going to deal with some problems and then at the end get the girl and solve the mystery or win the day, right? And that's mm. there weren't that many films, if any, growing up where I saw that happening with a black lead. And I mean, you know, Beverly Hills Cop would be an example, but Coming to America would be an example, but there aren't off the top of my head. I can't think of so many of these films as much as I can sort of recognize it, their absence, their lack. Again, for myself, um, growing up in London, and I talk around the, the cultural references of Batman that I was introduced to were mainly American product. Um, so we've spoken about the Spike Lee films and certainly also do the right thing, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X, um, those classic films uh, in the early 90s by Spike Lee really put race politics on the agenda as opposed to race right. representation. But um, for me, and again, this is the antithesis to my family watching The Cosby Show in a very, very nice and wholesome way. Mm. And this, dare I call it, fantasy of the black middle class existence that wasn't available to most African-Americans, but in many ways was held up as the acme of black life that one should attain to. The thing that I saw in the early 90s that really shook me to my boots in terms of thinking around the things that you were looking for was a film called Boys in the Hood, John Singleton. And um, that was a film that had a moving and shaking effect on me for thinking around the politics of race not just in an American context, but also mm. a British context as mm. well. And in many ways led me to what I'm doing and writing and speaking around today. Yeah. What were your experiences of first watching that film? Boys in the Hood. I mean, I, I link Boys in the Hood with my experiences watching like uh, New Jack City as well. Like around that Juice, another film around that time, or like all of those sort of coalesced into one particular depiction of the profound challenge of being a black male, right? 
and I come from New York City, but I went to schools in suburbs and I went to a university in a, in a town. I didn't really, you know, so I, my exposure to all of that was was minimal. But I also saw, I mean, I saw it as, as essentializing, but I also saw it as, as empowering in a problematic sense. And I think that's where my interest in sort of exploring how we frame African-Americans as a matter of justice developed because it was like, okay, we, we're seeing these tragic stories, but what are we being told to take away from that experience? We're being told that there's not much that can be done, if anything. We're being told that actually this is a problem that is easily, easily compartmentalized as other. Because the, the you know, Boys in the Hood was a huge mainstream hit, right? Mm. And most of the people that saw that film were white, right? And so looking at that film, it's about, okay, here's, here's, here's how we can hold up the black experience to you, problematize it, show it to you, and then, you know, take it away and remove it because it's, it's part of your escapist fantasy of going to the films. So I think, I don't know. I mean, I think we've gotten better. I would say in the last 10 years, there have been some really interesting, even more longer, really interesting developments regarding how not just somebody like Spike Lee, but other black auteurs are really pushing back against the way we represent blackness. Right. So Moonlight, we talked about that at a panel last year. It's a really mm. interesting example of that. It still traffics in some of these tropes, but it's really doing important work around sexuality, around identity. And so I, I see in those a critical perspective that was either much more subtle or not permissible in an early 90s, late 80s context of African-American cinema. Like, well, there's certain things we're just not going to say and do. We're not going to put that, and again, to fall back on sort of the frame that I use, we're not going to make this available as a learning moment for you to really think about how these conditions exist, manifest, might be disrupted. Like, in my view, that wasn't what we were supposed to do with a movie like New Jack City or Juice or Boys in the Hood. We were supposed to watch- Menace to Society as well, another one. Yeah, exactly. Menace to Society. We were supposed to watch those and be like, wow, that's deep, man. But that's Mm -hmm. it. We were supposed to remove ourselves afterwards, right? And- uh, I do think that we are getting to a place where, and maybe it's, I don't know if it's a good or bad thing, black cinema is becoming more about forcing us to confront and ask questions about inequality, black-white relations, um, black sexuality, things like that in ways that I think have been asked before, but not as overtly and as frequent. So in many ways, you're seeing a shift in how we even define African-American cinema or the black film or blackness in film that's maybe followed in linearity with different political cultures as well. I mean, thinking around Reaganism in the 80s and the 90s, and that required a certain film culture to push back on some of the more extremities of that, and then Bush, and maybe even Ken Clinton as well. So in many ways, Boys in the Hood, for some of its more stereotypical representations could also be conceived as a counter-hegemonic intervention into how black men were perceived to be. And even maybe having a film like that in all its rawness and viscerality maybe meant quite a lot to black people in the early 90s. Oh yeah, it certainly did. I mean, what what you can't argue, and I would never argue, is that um, these films were important for depicting the reality, and I say reality with air quotes because it is an unreality when it goes up on the screen, mm. but as close as you can get to the reality of what the black experience in America is like. You know, for a lot of people, watching that film was like 
their brains exploded because they'd never seen anything like that. And these are people that are a state or two away. So I think, yeah, I completely agree. I think that's a good way of framing it. I think putting my political hat and thinking about how you're framing it in terms of, you know, what did these successive presidential administrations and their policies and their politics do to black cinema? Um, I might argue that actually it, it almost doesn't matter. Um, mm. And that's because if you look at American politics and if you look at the way in which our politics existed over the last 30 years and even now, um, it's very difficult to argue that we are anything but a very conservative country. Even with Barack Obama in, in the presidency, mm. deeply conservative. And in fact, if anything, Barack Obama was the license for the forces of, of violent racism and white supremacy in the United States to really push even harder. Right. And so this is what we're seeing. We're seeing this is where my my research interest is sort of located at the moment, which is how do we get to this idea of what being woke is? And like, how do we I mean, that that term has been destroyed almost in a very short amount of time. Mm. Right. It is it's a slur to some people. Right. Where all it is signifying all it's meant to signify when you apply it to cultural production is an awareness and vigilance of black inequality and what needs to be done about it. Right. Now, it's been weaponized, but I would say, and I'm going a little bit off, off script a little bit, but I would say that in looking at the politics of successive administrations and how those politics refracted onto the way in which Americans did culture, I look at it more as the, the inexorable march of time. So the 60s brought us the civil rights movement because we had to have it at that point, right? Where we are now with the digital information age has brought us to a point where there is so much content, so much aggregation, so much information about different people's lives and experiences that it's generating these new regimes of processing. So some people are becoming more critical about how they decide to make and produce and represent the black experience in culture. And then you have the counterforce to that, which is the people that are like, we're, we're not okay with that. So we're going to find ways to vilify it and to marginalize it. I want to pick up on something you mentioned earlier, which was what you're seeing now, it may be in reaction to some of the films of the 90s, was this pushback against a particular representation of the Black experience to something more positive, more pedagogical, a bit more harmonious to the ascent of Black America. Because this is some of the kind of work that, of course, Stuart Hall Yep. Uh, worked with in the 80s, thinking around this positive-negative dichotomy and mm -hmm. the positive representation, i.e. let's have black people depicted as lawyers and doctors, right. doesn't necessarily displace a negative because a negative is really hegemonic in society. That's right. So what was interesting to me as a distant observer of black American culture, at least in the 90s, was the birth of, dare I say, more nuanced depictions of blackness that maybe lean more towards the harmonious middle-class family, maybe a legacy from the Cosby show, for instance. And we saw this a lot in the kind of late nineties. I think it could have been the result of ownership of black film production in a much more expansive sense. So you had Spike Lee, John Singleton, but I think the birth of other filmmakers and also the expansion of black culture more generally. So who are we talking about here? Some of the, some of the touchstones that you would mention here. I'm thinking of some of the films that involve, of course, Denzel Washington. Mm -hmm. um, I remember another film um, that had an amazing Boys to Men soundtrack in the <laughs> late 90s, of course, Boys to Men. Um, was it Big Mama's House or something or something around? Um, Martin Lawrence, yeah. Yeah. 
And we saw less of the hood drama mm. and more towards a focus on the black family around different genres, be it comedy, be it slapstick, be it dramas, anything else that wasn't necessarily interested in depicting the lacerated black body, mm. interrace violence. But also, I think in my research, it's showing me that it rode in a wave of other forms of popular black culture. I'm thinking of music here. Yeah. I'm thinking about the explosion of hip hop culture into the mainstream on MTV, on other kind of platforms as well. Yeah. So even those films you're talking around, be them the hood dramas or the more wholesome comedies, mm -hmm. are they included? black cultural icons in their films, hip hop stars, or the soundtrack, for instance, was a way to kind of carry the vessel yeah. of black culture, black politics within music Absolutely. onto the films. Of course, Boys and Hell had an amazing kind of soundtrack, but also many other films had amazing soundtracks as well. I'm thinking of Set It Off from 1996, oh, yeah. <laughs> what a film that was. Oh yeah. That brings in a nice gender politics into the hood drama as well with the amazing on Vogue soundtrack. Oh yeah. That whole film, I remember seeing that in the theater in Philadelphia and like the entire cinema was just screaming the whole time. They were just loving it. It's a great mm. film. Um, like I find your analysis really interesting and I'm, I'm trying to get my head around how, are you suggesting that we haven't really seen anything beyond that dichotomy of good black representation, so quote unquote good, and negative black representation um, because what, where my mind goes, because I don't disagree that that was sort of the predominant, those are the predominant frames in the 90s, but where my mind goes are to like the the ex experimental black films now, like where we're looking at films that are that are really trying to take back. It's not just about how we show blackness on screen. It's about who is making this film and how are they using their voice. And, you know, why was it only Spike Lee for 25 years and John Singleton who could make black films, you know? So now we have this... You know, Lena Waithe is an amazing writer. She's done some really good work for, um, she's the writer of uh, Queen Slim. Mm. And she's also done work for uh, Master of None, Aziz Ansari's show as well. She's written, she's a black queer woman, amazing writer. Um, and these are people who are, you know, in a very modest sense, disrupting the white patriarchal structure of Hollywood production. And this is the this is where the next terrain is to me. Because we don't see... We see it changing. We see it changing very slowly. And we see the performance of indignation every year at the Oscars. Mm. You know, we see that and we understand that people are really upset and there should be, you know, Oscars so white. Like, sure. But what are the steps that need to be taken to create a more authentic palette or a more um, diverse repertoire of black representation that transcends these binaries that you're talking about? Do you think the answer to that could be, and again, I've used this in my research, is the idea of demarking race even within the black film or the african-american film and what i mean demarking race is there a way or form of representation and i've seen many examples in many films of this where one can include or even center the black person as not necessarily representative of a black experience right. so in many ways moonlight which you've discussed many many times on the one hand, you can use the black prefix to describe that film because sure. it has Barry Jenkins as a fantastic director who is black. And also I think every single character in the film is also black as well. Right. However, for me, Moonlight was never about blackness mm. per se. It was about coming of age and realization of one's sexual liberty or discovering that across three distinct phases. Sure. Where 
blackness wasn't necessarily essential to understanding the trajectory of our central character. So do you think that maybe the idea of deracializing race could be a way to kind of overcome those binaries? I mean, I would love to say yes, but as you said that, I was, I think it's a really important point. But the first thing I thought was actually we can't because it would, it would involve decentering all race around cinema. And so there's a scholar, um, named Joe Feagan, who's written a book called The White Racial Frame. And I, I use that. It's a, use, it's a useful framework. He's basically saying, we can't look at anything that happens in America outside of a white racial frame. So the whiteness sits at the top. So for me to talk about deracializing a black film is to acknowledge that that deracialization performs whiteness. Because if you're looking at most films, they're embedded assumptions about who, where, what, right? In American film, in Hollywood film, most films are, you will have a white protagonist, right? Most films. And we don't ever question the racialization of whiteness on the screen. It is the default. It is the, the racial frame that sits atop everything. Yeah. So when we question deracializing, sure. I mean, I see that all the time. And I think in some ways it's important because the argument there is, we need to be able to tell black stories in a way that's not just making them about black stories. They're just people stories, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I agree with that, but I think the challenge is very difficult when you recognize that it is still common practice to tokenize blackness in most of the cultural products that we consume. Even when you, you know, you include a black character as a lead, you know, maybe there's two white characters behind them. So it's about like, that's, that's how I view it. And I don't know how reductive that is, but I guess, I guess where my head is at about it is that I want to believe that people, mm. not just black people, white people, all people could approach the film Moonlight and look at that as a tender, very difficult, very beautiful moving story that doesn't have to be about blackness. But I can't, I, I just cannot see that as happening because there are too many markers of blackness that are commented on as blackness, right? And I don't know. I mean, I'm curious. What What are your thoughts? Like, do you think Do you think it's possible to get there? It's utopia. It absolutely. is utopia. Yeah. But um, utopia is never reachable, is it? Absolutely, it's the horizon that's always out of reach. But um, I think there is something about the black film, the black American film, that remains always an embodiment of the racial politics of America by some shape or form. Yeah. The black film is never, ever just a film. It's always in a dialect and a conversation and a contestation over differing agendas, be it an intervention into the politics of race and society or in terms of black representation and diversity. Um, it's constantly being kind of pulled and pulled and shifted into different directions with different agendas, which means that the African-American film or the black representation in film is always embodied, is never simply a film or a text. It only becomes that before it goes into circulation. Right. And when it's kind of in circulation, it becomes something else. It becomes a cultural product that is there to be wrestled over with differing politics of race and diversity and inclusion. So, But we only see that happening about the black films, don't we? Yes, we do. Well, that was a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm looking forward to having you back on the podcast with later on. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been great. So what's next? And why should you keep listening to this podcast? In the episodes ahead, 
We'll be discussing a number of themes and films that help us to explore the representation of race in film and American society. I'll be joined by scholars, film critics, and other people who will help to debate the narratives and meanings of black film in the 21st century. In episode two, we'll examine architecture, creativity, and social space in films such as Patterson and The Last Black Man in San Francisco. These films investigate the spatial and temporal dimensions of urban space, race, and social encounter, articulated through the experiences of a bus driver and amateur poet in Palestine, New Jersey, and gentrification and displacement in San Francisco. In episode three, we'll look at the American underclass, using films such as American Honey and The Florida Project to develop a critique of the film's treatment of gender and working class identities. And in our fourth episode, we'll be discussing contemporary blackness in Hollywood via films such as Moonlight, Black Klansman, Black Panther, and more recently, Queen and Slim. In these discussions, we'll highlight modes of black representation that both embrace and collide against institutional structures reproducing racism in the US. Throughout these episodes, we'll be looking at what black film means, how we can try to define it, and how film functions as a societal site to contest race, inclusion, and representation. How much emphasis do we, or should we, place on cinematic depictions of race? Thanks so much to Samayas for joining me in this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. This episode was produced by Chris Gilson, Michaela Herman, and Dr. Clive James Nwanka. The Politics of Race in American Film is supported by the LSE's Knowledge Exchange and Impact Fund. To find out more about the LSE U.S. Center and our work, you can go to www.lse.ac.uk forward slash united hyphen states or follow us on Twitter at LSE underscore U.S.